Our texts this morning are two, and they are kind of representatives or high points in a larger story, and I won't read the story because it's many chapters in Genesis, Um, and most of us are probably at least somewhat familiar with it, but we'll explore it uh, together in in an informal way, but the first text is Genesis 47, verses 29 through 31. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. And then Hebrews chapter 11, which is in your New Testament, almost all the way to the end, pretty close to the book of Revelation. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 21 By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself in your word and that you would show us ourselves. We pray for your word to wash over us. We pray for it to change us, for your word is living and active and powerful. Your Holy Spirit takes that word and animates it and applies it to the hearts of believers and convicts unbelievers and brings them to a believing faith and to salvation. We ask for that tonight. We ask for that, Lord, in our hearts and in the hearts of our loved ones. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week uh, we met Enoch, and we said that he was one of only two people in the history of the world who never tasted death, and the other one, of course, is Elijah, and we noted that the text said that Enoch walked with God, and we saw that our God is a God who loves to walk with his people. He doesn't uh, want us to do life by ourselves. He knows, he designed us to need other persons in our lives because we are insufficient by ourselves. The first thing he said that wasn't good was it wasn't good for the man to be alone, and this is before sin entered in the world. So we need others. It's not good to not have others in our lives, and we don't just need superficial relationships. We need deep relationships in which we are known and received and accepted and loved unconditionally. One of the biggest tragedies of the event that we call the fall, which wasn't really a fall at all, it was actually a jump, is that human beings became disconnected from God's power and God's resources, and so all they have are their little finite resources. And our resources are totally insufficient to live a good and a flourishing life. 
So human beings, recognizing this at a very deep level, spend their lives both scrambling to gather resources to try and shore up their lives, things like money or status or beauty or power or knowledge or inside information, or they spend their lives trying to escape from reality with addictions and compulsions and self-soothing behaviors of all kinds. But even with all the scrambling, whatever they gather will never be enough. And when you wake up from whatever your chosen method of taking a vacation from reality is, reality will still be there. And more than likely, your vacation actually damaged your ability to deal with it rather than enhancing it. And in the process of this, we end up both being damaged by other people because we got in the way when they were scrambling for resources and that was their priority and not us, not our well-being. Or they had duties to us that went unfulfilled, either because they were too busy scrambling for resources or because they were indulging in their vacation from reality and they were too drunk or too high or too busy shopping for more shoes or whatever to be with us and to do for us what they're supposed to do. And it harms us often deeply. And we do the same thing to others, mostly without realizing it. Or if we do realize it, we minimize it. We minimize the damage. We do that so that we can live with ourselves and not feel too guilty. And into this broken world comes our God who wants to walk with us, and he says, I alone am sufficient. Reconnect with me through the shed blood of Jesus, and I guarantee that if you keep your eyes on me and if you walk with me and learn how to receive from me, you will have everything you need for all of your life, every area of it. And you won't have to scramble. And you won't have to hide. Not anymore. That fundamentally is what Jesus meant when he said that those who seek to save their lives by trying to shore them up and deal with their anxiety and their feeling of insufficiency will lose them, but those who lose their lives, who give up that scramble and just place their confidence in Jesus, for his sake, will find them. Well, today I want to look at an, another man who walked with God. In his younger years, he both hurt others deeply and had others hurt him deeply. And it was, of course, all about that scramble for resources that I mentioned earlier. And one night on a particularly dangerous journey, he met God. And he met him in a, an extremely real and concrete way, actually in bodily form. And he wrestled with God in a literal, physical wrestling match. This was probably the pre-incarnate Jesus that he wrestled with. And they wrestled all night. And when daybreak came, God said to him, let me go, for day is breaking. And the text says that God saw that he couldn't prevail against Jacob. And Jacob said, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And God said, what is your name? And Jacob said, Jacob. Now, Jacob means tricky, basically, in Hebrew. He's a shyster. And God said, you will no longer be named Tricky. You will no longer be named Shyster. You will no longer be named Jacob. But your new name is Israel, 
for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Israel means he strives with God. Now, I think up until that point, Jacob knew something was different because he asked for a blessing. And that's weird when somebody comes and starts wrestling with you in your camp. But I, I think all of a sudden, he realized who it was he had on his hands. All of a sudden, it, it dawns on him. And this man blesses him and he leaves. And Jacob names that place Peniel, which means the face of God. Pene is face and El is God. Penuel, sorry. Penuel. For he says, for I have seen the face of God and I didn't die. Now, during this wrestling match, God touches Jacob's hip at the socket and he puts it out of joint permanently. And so Jacob left Penuel with a limp that he had for the rest of his life. His hip was out of joint for the rest of his life. If you've ever had something like that happen to you, that is not a comfortable state of being. You see, Jacob's encounter with God both wounded him and healed him. And so Jacob walked with God from that point on, but he did so with a limp. Now, I want you to think for a minute about the humility of this God. He comes to Jacob in human form. Had he appeared as he actually is, Jacob would have been instantly vaporized. He would have been instantly destroyed. For the scripture says, no man can look on God and live. It says he dwells in inapproachable light. That's part of the reason for Jesus, so that we can look on God and live. He is the exact imprint of God, it says in Hebrews chapter 1. And so when we see him, we see God. But we see a God we can actually see and still live. He wrestles with Jacob, and he lets him win. He asks Jacob's name as though he doesn't know what it is. And this being, whom the scripture says measures the entire universe with the span of his hand, and who knows everything there is to know, and he humbles himself, and he takes on human form to wrestle with one of his creatures and to impart blessing and salvation to him. Why did he do that? Why did God do that? Because of his great love for Jacob. Jacob, at this point in his life, wasn't very lovable at all. He was a jerk. You see, God loves his people, and his whole goal in human history is to create an all-inclusive community of loving persons with God himself as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. That's why there's a world. That's why there are angels. That's why there's a heaven and a hell. God purposes to draw out from all of humanity, a people of his very own, a treasured possession to the praise of his glorious grace. It's one people drawn from every people group on the planet, and we will spend eternity together in total peace and total harmony. There will be no hatred. There will be no racism. There will be no sexual assault. There will be no verbal assault. There will be no put-downs. No one will feel superior. 
and no one will be or will feel inferior, though Jesus himself says that there will be those who are called great in the kingdom of heaven and those who are called least in the kingdom of heaven. But the least will rejoice in the greatness of the great. And the great won't lord it over the weak and the least. They will rejoice in each other and they will serve each other and they will love each other deeply and truly. That's what's awaiting us on the other side. And by the way, that's not just for the other side. It's also for now. That's why his plan for the local church is what it is. That's why he says in John 13 that the way that the world will know about him is that his disciples love each other. In other words, that we bring up there, down here, among us. God's plan for world evangelization is not primarily a message. It's a people possessed by agape love who speak a message. And they speak it with their lives before they ever open their mouths to speak it with their words. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's what it means to let your good works shine so that men give glory to God. That's why Jesus says, you must love each other. As I have loved you, you must love each other. Well, that limp that he acquired at about the age of 40 is a pretty good visual symbol of how Jacob, how Israel, how his life went. It was very painful. It was constant. His family was a mess. His neighbors both hated and feared him. His own brother had pledged to kill him at one point, and Jacob was never, ever sure that he wouldn't make good on that threat. And we fast forward 90 more years, and Jacob... Israel now finds that his second youngest son is second in command of Egypt. And Jacob meets Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he must have looked pretty bad because Pharaoh looks at him and says, how old are you? And Jacob says, the days of my years of my sojourn are 130 years and few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Few and evil have been my years. He said this even though he had thought for decades that his son Joseph, the one who's in the second command of, in command of Egypt, was dead. He just found out that he was alive. And it was a moment of joy for him, but it was also a moment of anger and betrayal and pain because the whole reason Joseph was in Egypt was because his brothers initially thought they would kill him and then they said no let's make some money off of him and they gave him to some slave traders and they sent him to Egypt and then they told his dad uh, he's dead he must have gotten torn by a wild animal here's his coat we found it in the in the wilderness so Jacob spent all these decades thinking his son was dead and the rest of his sons let him do it and then he finds out he's alive. And it's like, okay, now we got to tell dad the truth. And Jacob is angry. He's deeply hurt. You know, sometimes the life of a godly person 
is hard. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's just a struggle. You have plans that don't work out. You have cherished dreams that die. The people who are supposed to have your back wound you or fail you. Sometimes every step is painful and you walk with a limp. Maybe your limp is on the inside. Maybe it's on the outside. But every step is painful and you limp nonetheless. Well, we fast forward 17 more years from this episode where he meets Pharaoh and says the, the, the years of my life have been few and my days have been evil. He, we fast forward 17 years and we have the phrase that stands out from the scriptures even when it's not highlighted there in Genesis chapter 47. When the time drew near that Israel must die. When the time drew near that Israel must die. Does that phrase frighten you? Put your name there. When the time draws near that Brian must die. When the time draws near that you must die. Have you ever asked yourself, what will it be like? What will I experience? Well, there are some variables, of course. Israel's death seemed to be a slow death. He knew it was coming. He could feel it. He had lots of time to prepare. He had lots of times to, to say the things that needed to be said. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 48 and 49. Sometimes death comes slow. Sometimes death comes fast. Sometimes there's pain. Often there's not. And we also live in a time when we have wonderful resources for pain control. And just as a plug, please use them when it's time. Use those resources. And if you're taking care of somebody who's getting close, don't be afraid to use those resources. You'd be surprised by the number of people I ministered to as a hospice chaplain who did not want to use those resources, who were afraid to give them to a loved one for fear of ending their life sooner or something like that. But I, I can tell you, you can't do that. They don't give you enough at one time to be able to overdose someone accidentally or on purpose. So what will it be like? What will you experience? Oh, loved ones. If you walk with God, God promises to take special care of you during that time. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, says the psalmist in Psalm 116. If you think about it for a minute, if you had a child whom you loved and they needed to go somewhere to a foreign land, you wouldn't put that child on a rickety, unsafe airplane and send them off to a foreign land with nobody to receive them at the airport and to care for them and to greet them on the other side of the journey. If you being evil take such good care of your children and see to it that their journey is safe and happy, how much more will your good father take care of you for whom his only begotten son shed his blood to see to it that your journey is safe and comfortable and happy? The assurances of the scriptures 
are resounding and they are clear. For the godly person, death is nothing. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28. He says, don't, don't fear those who can kill only the body. You don't, you don't need to worry about your body dying. In John chapter 8, verses 51 and 52, Jesus assures those of us who place their confidence in him that we won't experience, we won't taste death. Now, you say to yourself, how in the world does that happen? Well, it just so happens that God has designed us so that the body will begin, as you begin the process of dying, to be separated from that invisible spiritual part of you that experiences things your consciousness, if you will. And, and if you think about it, something like this happens in surgery. If you were awake for surgery, that would be horrible, right? But they put you in a place where your consciousness doesn't know what's going on with your body. And now we've got even newer drugs that can do that to a lesser degree. Conscious sedation, we call it. And so your body goes through things, but you don't suffer. You don't remember you don't agonize over what happened to your body. This is very similar to what happens at death. And so while our loved ones are around our deathbed viewing what's happening to our bodies, they are sometimes distressed because they are thinking that because the body is undergoing these things that we are suffering. But we aren't. Because the invisible spiritual center of our being our consciousness, if you wish, is detached from our body in a strange way. Friends, I've seen it. I've talked to people who have experienced it and then turned around and came back. Over and over again, I've attended the deaths of the godly. I always ask them two questions as they get close. Number one, are you afraid? The answer is almost always no. Number two, are you in pain? The answer is almost always no. Are you afraid? Are you in pain? Those are the things we worry about. Will I be afraid? Will I be in pain? No. And what did Israel do as he was dying? Text of scripture in Hebrews 11 says, he leaned on his staff and he worshiped God by faith. Few and evil were his days, and they were almost over. That painful limp would soon be a memory as he would run down streets of gold to greet his family and behold his God saying, it's good to see you again. Thanks for letting me win last time. Israel worshiped God as he died, and then he passed quietly. There's a phrase in Genesis, early in Genesis, that I absolutely love. I find it so charming. The, 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 the language for someone dying is he was gathered to his people. He was gathered to his people. I love that phrase in Genesis. That's, what is it to die? It's to be gathered to your people. There's a, there's a song that I just love by a New Zealand artist named Anne Brun. And when you listen to her voice, she reminds me of a young Dolly Parton. And it goes like this. When I go, don't cry for me, for in my father's arms I'll be. The wounds this world left on my soul will all be healed and I'll be whole. 
sun and moon will be replaced with the light of Jesus' face, and I will not be ashamed, for my Savior knows my name. It don't matter where you bury me. I'll be home, and I'll be free. It don't matter anywhere I lay. All my tears be washed away. Don't you long for that? I'm not talking about being suicidal. That's a great sin, whether it's slow motion suicide or fast motion suicide. I'm just talking about being ready for some rest. I'm just talking about finally being purified totally of the sin that vexes you and everybody else around you, frankly, and the body that afflicts you and fails you. I'm talking about being home. I'm talking about the end of the rejection and the pain that all the others in your life inflict on you. Home. Being home in the fullest and the best sense of the word. And Israel was ready. Israel was expectant. Israel had a heart full of the Spirit of God and spoke life over his sons and his grandsons. So friends, don't rush your death. But don't run from it either. If you belong to Jesus, this world is as close to hell as you're ever going to experience. If you don't belong to Jesus, this world is as close to heaven as you're ever going to get. This world is not your home. I, I want to close with a little story, true story. From a biography, it's not important. The details aren't important. This person had just experienced the death of a very godly and dear friend. And they were processing that. On Wednesday, May 18th, 2016, I was sitting with Regina, my wife, in our parked car at La Casa de Maria in Santa Barbara. It's special for us. A sanctuary we have been visiting more than three decades. It was also the place where I said my last goodbye to Dallas Willard, sitting on a wooden bench near the chapel. Regina and I were deep in conversation when a woman about our age came to the driver's side and tapped on the window. She wanted to make sure that we were not about to back up our car. She explained that she had been bringing her dog to that spot to play almost every day for a decade. The dog was blind and would not be able to see our car if we moved it. We assured her that we would be parked a long time and would not move without first letting her know. Then we went back to our conversation. But after a while, we noticed rhythmic scraping sounds behind us. We were not prepared for what we saw when we turned in our seats. The mid-sized dog had a solid white coat. His eyes seemed blue, but it was hard to tell as they were clouded by the blindness. As we watched, the woman ran backwards, making large figure eight patterns. She was dragging her feet across the pebbles and the old asphalt as she ran, creating scraping sounds for her dog to hear. The dog had a tennis ball in its mouth and seemed to be laughing with joy as he tried to stay close to her. The woman was smiling back at her companion and saying, I'm right here. I see you. I've got you. 
As we watched the graceful movements and loving accommodation, tears came to to our eyes. And then I felt like I heard God say something like, you are the dog and I am the owner. I know you can't see what is really real and all around you. I know you can't see me, but I have you. I love you. I'll make noises that you can hear. Follow me. I'm right here. I see you. I've got you. Our God will walk with us all of our days, caring for us extremely well. And he will see us safely through that final journey. For he is faithful and true. And he says, follow me. I'm right here. I see you.